Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Ozark, the Netflix television drama starring Jason Bateman and Laura Linney that has streamed three seasons on Netflix. High-level plot summary, Jason Bateman plays a financial advisor who, to assist with his laundering of money for a Mexican drug cartel, relocates his family from Chicago to the Missouri Ozarks. At Rotten Tomatoes, the average tomato meter score is 81%, and the critics' consensus for season three reads, Ozark finally finds its footing in a third season that ramps up the tension and shines a brighter spotlight on Laura Linney's exceptional performance. As a warning to listeners, today's discussion might contain spoilers. It's a little change of pace, but my guests today are producers from the show rather than crew. We're still aiming for a crew-oriented discussion, so we'll see how it goes. Matt Spiegel, you've been the line producer and unit production manager for all three seasons. Welcome to Below the Line. Thank you, Skid. Nice to be here. And Patrick Markey, you've also been with Ozark for the run of the show, and you're one of the executive producers. Welcome. Thank you for inviting us. Well, glad to have you both here today. And I think for starting out, let's explain to our listeners the role of producers in television. Anecdotally, when people ask me, what did this person do on a, a TV or movie that's listed as producer? My response is usually that unless you're there on set or part of the actual production, you can't tell from the title alone. Go ahead, Matt. <laughs> well, um, you know, both Patrick and I uh, come from uh, the feature side of the world and we've both been, you know, working, we both worked in features for many years. Um, so there's some slight nuances to what the titles are and who does what specifically between the world of uh, feature films and, and the world of, of television. Um, you know, I think that uh, in, in TV, many of the producers are writers. Um, you, your, your showrunner is usually your executive producer. And then because all of the writers, you know, there's a hierarchy within the writer's room. And so there are many writers that work that oversee other writers. And so, mo you know, many of the writers that come that will be in the credits from a, uh, a television show will have producer credits as well. Um, Patrick and I are the physical producers who are on site uh, and have been there for every day of shooting. Uh, along with uh, Jason Bateman, who's our executive producer and uh, lead director and star of our show. And um, we all, you know, we all have different roles and we all have different capacities that we, we work within. But really, I would say that, you know, between, between Chris Mundy, who is our showrunner, head writer, executive producer, and Jason, who is our head uh, director and executive producer, and Patrick, who is our physical production executive producer who marries the world of the creative with our with our physical production world um those are kind of our our main people we all kind of you know work within that system would you say that's a a good uh, description there patrick or you have uh, nuance to that <laughs> yeah i've had a tough time defining that role my whole career uh, <laughs> it's it changes obviously from moment to moment and there's no task that's come to producer's way that's too small or insignificant. If it needs to be done, we dive in and fix that. If the lunch is late, we need to be concerned with that. If an actor is having a problem with a particular scene or a director is having difficulty with the script, we need to kind of figure out how to fix that for them. So from the top to the bottom of it all, we are there to assist how we can in whatever happens to be going on at the moment. 
then the other side of it is the money and 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 overseeing and managing the money on you know making sure that the product that is desired is delivered to the creative uh, needs while being able to be delivered at the cost that the financiers want it to cost. And as both a, a producer and, and the unit production manager, I uh, very much oversee the, the management of the budget and, and specifically making deals both with vendors as well as with crew and departments and, and working through everybody's individual budgets and making sure that we're able to deliver the show that we need to deliver. And Matt and I are constantly in communication about what we need to do to push it forward. And we may spend more going into overtime or doing something here that's gonna be more cost, uh, uh, it's gonna cost more than we wanted it to, figuring out a way in another day or so to kind of bring that back together. So it's just constant push pull. We have X amount to spend and we try to stay within that. But where it goes specifically changes moment to moment. But at the end of it all, you want it to kind of balance out financially and then obviously never letting the creative suffer. So it's a constant uh, struggle between those two elements to kind of bring it to uh, to bring it to pass. And you guys have talked about that uh, both Matt and you, Patrick, are on set with the filming crew, which is in Atlanta. Now, we'll talk more about that on locations, but... I understand that your that Chris Mundy leads the writing team back in Los Angeles. Is that is that a correct breakdown that you guys are coast to coast on this, or is there some other yeah. split? The, the the writing takes place in Los Angeles. That's where the writer's room is, and then adjacent to the writer's room is the editorial suites. So we get all the, we get the words from Chris. We execute them on the set, send those words back on film to the editing room, and then Chris oversees that process of putting it together there. So we are on separate coasts, but Chris Mundy is with us a lot. He flies out all the time to oversee, weigh in, be there for security for us and for the actors, talk to the writer, let Chris bring it to you. And he's very good at that. He's a wonderful partner for both of us, a really collaborative guy, um, no ego, and just allows us to do our work and is very appreciative of what Matt and I go through to put it on screen and is always there to help us solve problems. And then the other writers come and go when they have a script that they've written that's up, then they come and they are on set for that 10 days or whatever we're shooting to kind of work the cast through whatever questions they may have and also get them experience. So eventually they can go on to become a Chris Monday and teach them how to work the set and that kind of stuff. So we see the writers from time to time. We see Monday quite a bit and the relationship with them is a key to us getting this done. And also to them, if we didn't have those words, we wouldn't have the show that we're talking about right now. No matter how good producing Matt and I do, we're only as good as what's on that page. And our writers are amazing. We have five, I think six scripts we just got today for this new season. And uh, it's going to be under, it's really, it's great writing to read just for the pure pleasure of reading it because they put it together so well. And we're really blessed. That doesn't work that way on every show, but here we have a great group of people kind of all the way across the board. And Monday and JB are both great partners for us as producers. I want to turn our attention to what happens in Atlanta and more about the actual production itself. But before we leave the role of producer behind, Matt, I see a lot in shows where the line producer and the unit production manager is are shared titles by one person. Talk to us a little bit about what those jobs are. The unit production manager, folks who don't know, is a position that's overseen by the Directors Guild, but line producer is not necessarily. And are they different roles that just come together with a show like this, or are you seeing more and more that it's sort of a joint position? 
Uh, it depends. Um, I would say that in feature films that it has been a joint position for uh, shows of a certain size, uh, depending on, you know, under a certain budget level, a lot of shows that are uh, feature films do have uh, a joint line producer and unit production manager. Um, in in episodic TV, because you have multiple directors and you have somebody is always prepping and somebody is always uh, and somebody is always <laughs> shooting at the same time, and so you you have multiple people going on in multiple places at this at um, all happening at the same time. So. You know, traditionally, I would say that the UPM is there to, you know, to make sure that everything that needs to be in place is is in place. And I think the producer is there to make sure that it's functioning correctly and and that you're and that everything is is executed to the highest sort of level. Um, and so I think that there is a lot of crossover, but I think that um, there can be times and certainly I will say that uh, I, I I would be wrong if I said that I would not be guilty of sometimes focusing too much on the bottom line. And I think that Patrick has always been sort of, you know, a very good uh, ally in being able to to help us all figure out what the um, the best course forward is to make sure that we are protecting our show, always putting, you know, the good of the show first is what I would say towards that. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk more about uh, the locations and the filming. Patrick, take us back to the early days. You have this script, starts in Chicago, moves down to the Missouri Ozarks. How do you end up in Atlanta? Actually, when I got called on the show by MRC, um, a fellow named Reed Shane, who ran that company, uh, the production side of that company for a long time, called about that. I went in and met with him, met Bateman Monday, like, the whole felt right. We had already made one preliminary trip to Georgia, knowing that there were incentives there, knowing that we needed to uh, have a look at uh, replicated rural Missouri uh, in the Ozarks. Um, he had taken a trip there somewhat before we got on board and found the Blue Cat Lodge, which is that blue kind of motel thing that sits on the water. And that became kind of our significant location in the first year, that into Birdhouse. And he had already found that, made a partial deal to hold that, and that became a real essential part of the show. So Reed had already figured that part out. <clears throat> I wanted to go to Georgia. There was talk about doing it outside of New York City, which was kind of wacky at one time. And I don't think maybe Jason or somebody had talked about that as a possibility, but that was never going to work. And so then it quickly moved to Georgia, made sense, put it there. And we shot successfully there, or here, I guess I'm here now, ever since. And we've done a pretty good job of cheating that look in rural Missouri. Um, it's lovely at Lake of the Ozarks and has all the stuff that we would need except for a crew base. And Atlanta offers a lot that rural um, Missouri can't. And so we kind of cheated it, shot a lot of second unit down there and tried to get as much Missouri in the show as we could. But 95% or more of what we shoot uh, is in Atlanta and it ended up there because of Reed having been sort of a visionary and picked that location and thought, my God, this would be great. We took it over and the show kind of, we kind of built around that. And then when we got here, found the stages at Eagle Rock and with Matt's help and kind of putting the local part of it together, we found our locations on two lakes, one Northeast and one Northwest of Atlanta, trying to stay out of the traffic in the middle part of the city and stay where our stages are on the Northeastern corner of the city in Norcross. And then we go north out of there, east and west to get over to Altoona and get up to Lake Lanier. And uh, that's kind of been our 
target of opportunity since we started the show and pretty much have remained that, although we're now much more at Lanier and the Birdhouse than we are at the, uh, at the Blue Cat, which is where we started. Some version of that is how we ended up here. I think Matt might have a slightly different. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, I would just say that we, you know, we very much have made use of the thirty miles zone. When you, when you're, when you're shooting a uh, production from your production office, you have a thirty mile as the crow flies zone, which is where you can have. Okay. You could film with your crew without it being a distant location, and we very much have used all of that. We, you know, we um, Lake Lanier is is northeast of the city. Lake Alatoona, where we were a lot of uh, seasons one and two, is northwest of the city. We've done, you know, we've cheated Atlanta for various other places, everywhere from Chicago to Mexico City. So, you know, the the city of Atlanta and the Atlanta metro area has been, you know, we've been able to fill in a lot of different looks in in that area. Um, it has it has really helped make the show feel like we've been in a lot more places than we actually have been. We went to we went to Chicago the first season for for a few days for the for the first episode and and we were in the Lake of the Ozarks as Patrick mentioned also in the first season for a few days. But other than a few days that we shot in Savannah in season three, the entire rest of it has been in the Atlanta metro area. Now filming in Atlanta, I know that. George has made a real effort to attract film production and there is the industry is, is built up, but how does it compare to other film centers where you may have been in the past? Great crew base here. Um, there's some political issues that have caused some, issues, some stuff for Hollywood with the whole heartbeat bill and whatever that uh, will drive business out of here if those pass. And we just sort of monitor that, hope that doesn't happen, want to keep the jobs here. There's a fantastic base of crew members here, a talented IE people, a lot of whom I and other guilds, but people have relocated, like Matt. Matt moved from Los Angeles and now lives with his family here in Decatur. And a number of people have done that at very significant positions all across the, the board that are very reliable, professional folks that are here and help get films made. If films were to go away here, incentive were to go away those films would move back to new orleans or these <laughs> you can't avoid these incentives and studios chase them whether we want to or not we have to bring that up because it's a 30 percent budget issue and you have to look where the where the money is where you can and then the crew base is essential and Atlanta, even in the time we've been here, just uh, that I've been here, which have gone on four years now, the crew base has just increased exponentially in skill set and uh, desire to work. And we have really loyal people that keep coming back to the show. So Atlanta's great stages. Uh, and like Matt said, the look is very diverse. We found so much stuff here that we didn't think we could find. And uh, all in all, we really like working here. We would hate to leave. But uh, other than those kind of political issues that come up from time to time, we're very happy here. No, I mean, look, I would say that Atlanta is a, is a world-class production destination at this point. I mean, in terms of the United States, you've got Los Angeles, New York, and Atlanta. You've got Vancouver and Toronto and Canada. You've got London. You know, those are the places that you're looking at now. There was a time when, you know, if you were, were where it was a lot of chasing the incentives, as, as Patrick said, I, I think we've all worked all over the country and all over the world. And there was, you know, the hot, you know, new spot and going going to different states and, at one time it was Michigan and then Iowa and all, you know, but, and, and Louisiana and, but, but I think that, that Georgia has settled on, you know, there is the right combination. You have the three things here, which is one, you have the incentive, which is the first initial draw. 
Um, and then after that, you have sound stages, which are at, a, at an absolute premium worldwide right now. Not right at this current moment, right at the second, but but prior to everything shutting down, uh, sound stages were at an absolute premium worldwide. And Atlanta has uh, a high number of purpose-built sound stages that are on a par with anything else around the world. And then you have an incredibly deep crew base here. And that is a combination of Georgia having a long history of, of film production going back to, you know, everything from Deliverance, but driving Miss Daisy and, and you know, Remember the Titans. And, you know, there, there has always been a consistent film production crew base that's been here. But then as other states lost their incentive um, that you found people moving here from you know North Carolina which had has a very talented history of a, of a crew base and you had a lot of people move here from Florida which didn't have an incentive any longer and you had people move here from Louisiana and, and just this became kind of the you know the regional hub of of where everything you know was being made if not in in LA or New York that combination of those three things really make it a very viable place. A lot of very, very big shows, both on the episodic side of things as well as the featured, are, are made here. And I think it's done at a very, very high level. As Patrick mentioned, I did move here. I, you know, I have uh, young daughters and um, I was traveling a lot for years on end. And my wife and I discussed what the, you know, what the best option for us to, to do would be. And I was never really the LA guy. I just never really worked there. Everything I did was somewhere else. And this just made sense for us. And it's been a really, it's been a nice fit for us to, to be living here. And, and I would say the work that comes here has been of a very, very high level. And I'm, I, you know, between that, plus I like the cruise here. I mean, like I really do. I genuinely, I, I think, you know, I think that there is a level of excitement uh, amongst the people that are here. Um, and I think that you get a very high level of professionalism and, you know, I think that you can do very well here. So did you build your crews from scratch or did you bring in some keys from Los Angeles or other favorites of, oh, I don't know, direct photography, yeah. you've got cash, you've got oh, some, yeah. you know, folks who you, people work with the people that they know and they've worked with before. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of people that I had pulled in from other projects because I had already been in Atlanta, but there were a lot of people there. Exactly. As you said, there were people that the director knew and brought in. There were people that Patrick knew and brought in. We, I mean, I think that this show was a unique show unto itself and we, you know, I think especially in the first season, you're kind of figuring out what it actually is and what your, you know, what muscle it is that you're you're building to to make the show sort of as efficient as possible at the level of, of what you're wanting to do. And um, we have, you know, kind of a, a really good balance of, of people between people from Atlanta with a handful, I would say, not, not, not like a, I wouldn't, you know, it's not probably not, you know, it, it's some, it's a small percentage, but they're key people that we have brought in from other places that uh, sort of have filled out the show. But most of our crew, I would say is, is from the Atlanta area, but there are people from other places in the department head kind of roles. And fewer and fewer people from the first year. I mean, each year we probably have less people coming in and we found other local people that fit the bill or other people have moved here. So, uh, we are an Atlanta-based crew with, uh, you know, certain people that come in, DPs and people like that. But uh, Atlanta will eventually have all that if it continues on the course that it's on. And so the longer you shoot here and the more they keep that crew base, the less you have to bring in from. And a lot of people don't live in L.A. anymore because the business is so decentralized. You can kind of live anywhere. We have a couple of people that live in Austin and places like that that have had film work over the years, a few people that come out of New Orleans, uh, that come out of, uh, like Matt said, in North Carolina, 
couple guys from Detroit that came in and did our special effects last year who were terrific. So from regions around the country, but not necessarily from LA. And earlier, Patrick, you suggested that there was a lot of consistency in your crew year to year. Um, and from what it sounds like, it's not because of lack of opportunities in Atlanta that folks could move to other shows, but it sounds like you've brought folks in, tailored it over the years, but a pretty consistent crew base that's enjoying working on this show. Is that fair to ask? Yeah, I think Matt and I have worked really hard with Chris Mundy and Bateman to try to get this sense of a familial relationship on a crew where we're all there working together. We're only as strong as our weakest link, so people support one another and are there to help get stuff done. We try not to blame anybody if something goes wrong, just figure out what the hell's wrong, fix it and move on. And we brought a lot of young people in too. Their AD staff, a lot of them are from here or relocated to here and uh, great people that we're going to be turning this business over to one day. And so we want to give them examples of how to do this civilly and compassionately with an eye for the, to the bottom line, keeping the integrity of the creative stuff always foremost and making it fun. It's too damn hard to not be an enjoyable experience. They can be miserable when things aren't working or you're not getting along. It's no matter how much you pay people. And it isn't, we don't attract people because we overpay them or we have a lot of money. We get people that make a good living, are being respected, and they get to do work that they're challenged by and go home at the end of the day feeling like they really contributed to doing something worthwhile. It's very important that every one of them on that crew feels that whatever they're contributing is essential to our success. And we try to reassure them of that whenever we can. I was extolling the the virtues of Atlanta. Um, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I would say is that it is very, very busy in Atlanta and there are a lot of opportunities. And I think that it's, um, it's not by accident that our show has retained the number of people that it has. I and mean, we have a very, very high number of people who go out of their way to keep themselves available. And the schedule is, in, you know, irregular as, as everything is in this sort of streaming world. But people make a point of wanting to do this show and coming back to it. And it really, you know, it really has created this family atmosphere at this point. And I know I've heard that for many years being a feature person. I never really got that on TV and hearing like people saying, oh, yeah, sure. You're a family. But it really it really has. And it's a really tight knit group of people that have been through a lot together. It's a hard show. It's a show that's largely location based. Um, it's not on the stages all that much. It's hot in, in Georgia in the summertime. Uh, there are long distances between things. So, so there is a, a level of a grind to it in our, in our project shoots for half the year, you know? So I think that there is a level of difficulty just sort of in the, in the logistics of our show, but it is something that a lot of people have really enjoyed and made a priority to return to, and they've had other options to not. And, and I think that, I think that speaks, you know, volumes to Patrick and Jason and Chris and, you know, I'll give myself a pat on the back. I'll give myself a little pat on the back on that. But I really, I mean, really, I think it's, I think it's just, it's a good culture and environment that, that, that the show. We hate to lose Matt in this upcoming season. He's going to be going off and doing a very big prestigious show here in town. And we want him to wish him great success. But Matt's been a part of our family from the beginning. And uh, we're going to miss uh, having him because uh, He's helped us build this uh, this team and put it together. And the show is, Matt's right, the show is physically very demanding. The distances, the heat, the humidity, the storms, the lake, the water work, night work, 
and bugs, snakes, whatever. It's all there, and we get through it and get it done. But I don't mind that physical challenge. I think sometimes that makes for better material, and our crew seems to enjoy it as well. At the end of an 11-day episode, we finally get to live back to the stage for a day of air conditioning, and we all look for that refuge on stage because the work outside takes its toll. But uh, it shows up on the screen, too. I think the, the reality of what we create, the world that we create is very important to us, the look of it. And we get that. I mean, it, we get that up at Lake Lanier and, uh, and we got it at Lake Alatuna. That's the real integrity and a, and, a, and, a, and a sense of really being in the Ozarks, which we're able to create here. Is, uh, it's exciting. We don't stop short. We continue to push to get that where we need it to be. And um, it shows, I think, on screen. Both of you have referenced some of the specific challenges of doing the show, and I want to come back to that. Before we leave this conversation about crew, I want to take a moment and step back and talk to you about how the relationship above and below the line has changed over the years. Now, as we noted in the beginning, and we should probably make more clear, as producers, both of you are technically above the line. But this relationship with below the line and crew in general has evolved, and I'd like to hear from you guys about your feelings about where it stands and where it's been. Sure, Matt, you want to go ahead on that? Sure. I mean, look, I think that it depends on the show, to, uh, to be honest with you. I think that um, our crew on, on Ozark is <clears throat> an integral part of the, of the process creatively of the show. You know, everyone from our camera operators and our gaffer and our costume designer and our production designer, like every, it, it is a it is a show that is a very collaborative show. And I think that the creatives uh, on, on the show are very open and receptive to the ideas that are brought forth. And I think that everybody is sort of put into a position. The, the intention is to put all of those people into a position where they are able to do their best creative work in order to elevate the material of the show. I think that um, one, one thing that I will say that that is, you know, particularly unique about Ozark um, is uh, Jason Bateman grew up on sets. You know, he, he was on set since he was five years old. And he is a guy who will talk to every he knows every single person on the crew. He knows their name. He knows every single PA. He knows every craft service person. He knows, you know, and if there's something not right, he, you know, he wants to hear it. He wants to know it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that has certainly informed the culture of, of our show as well. And that I think is, is unique because you don't always have your, your creatives, your directors, uh, you know, sort of as engaged in that level of process and process is very important on the show to all of us. And that, that isn't always the case there that I will certainly say that I have worked with, with, you know, with creatives that are less concerned there, you know, that are less concerned with how the sausage is made, so to speak. They just want what they want. They don't really care how it gets there. And uh, um, that is not the case on, on Ozark. And that is a nice, unique experience. So. Um, yeah, Bateman's uh, very aware of what it takes to make a movie. And Jason having been on set since he was a kid, essentially being raised on sets, He's acutely aware of difficulties a crew may face. Or if we say we're going to flip this schedule and we're going to do thus and such, and he'll say, well, what about the camera crew? What about those scripts? How are those, you know, how's that going to work for those guys? So he takes a very deep personal interest in each person's job, and they know that he's there to speak to them if people want to talk about it, or he will ask them. And then he brings that back to us as a fellow producer 
as something that needs to be looked into. So he takes a, a deep personal interest in the welfare of the crew and the work that people do to put it on screen. And since he was raised on set, a lot of actors don't have that background, very aware of what each and every person does and what it takes to get that job done. And I must say, Laura Linney is an exception to that as well, because she also very tied to the crew, knows everybody, very kind, helpful. People can talk to them. They everybody respects everybody here and it, that starts at the very top Matt and I couldn't do that if we didn't have Bateman and Monday feeling uh, as kindred spirits on that that we all are doing this together and we have their support been on shows where I felt that way but I didn't have that above me and I couldn't make it happen even though I wanted to here's a case where we kind of got it close to right and that doesn't happen all, all the time in our business Let's talk about some of the specific challenges of filming Ozark. You would to some things earlier, but first, talk to me about scheduling a streaming show where you know that all the episodes are going to drop at once. So in some sense, you can schedule it as a movie, and yet you still have separate episodes, different directors. Are there different challenges for how you would do a show like this compared to, say, another show or a feature film? Generally speaking, what we, what we tend to do is we do two episodes at a time. Our episodes are 11 days, um, and so we have 22-day blocks, essentially, per director. Each block has a uh, a separate director, uh, first AD, second AD, and DP. Um, And so there's, you know, you always have these kind of, you have these mini movies that you're always kind of working on, and they're kind of overlapping. You get, you know, you have your initial prep of, of each season where you make your builds for the upcoming season that will play throughout the entirety of the season. But then each episode, you, you know, I think Ozark has always gotten their scripts well in advance, but it's still is, you know, you, it's coming together, not at, at, you know, it's a, it still is a very fast moving process in terms of how, how the whole process completely comes together. Uh, in terms of it being different from a different show, you know, every, every show is different, uh, you know, especially in the streaming world, there's no rules. Um, you know, I've done a series, which was eight episodes, one director where all eight episodes are, are cross-boarded all together. I've done shows where it's every, you know, it's the sort of more traditional network model where there's a different director for each episode. Um, you know, on our last season of Ozark, we had, uh, two directors do two episodes, uh, two directors do one episode and one director do a big four episode block. So, you know, there's no rules, I would say, for, for any of this at this point. It's what works best in, in each particular situation. That's kind of the fun of this streaming world is that it's not this, you know, it's not the, it's not the, uh, the same box. You have to rethink the box. You have to rethink the, your assumptions from top to bottom. And uh, I think that's what makes it very interesting from a managerial and, and uh uh, planning level. Since Jason's the producer and director and star, um, he's been uh, not adamant, but certainly encouraging whenever we can to shoot out everything in an episode, not leave pieces for later, which some some companies do. If you're going to go to that bar, then maybe you block two or three or four episodes around. Everybody goes there and shoots that out over a period of time. We try to shoot in continuity as much as possible for the actors and the directors. And we try to get these things as complete as we can get them, move on to the next. So we don't have a bunch of dangling stuff waiting they can get it into post, they can cut it. And um, we try to complete as much as possible. Now with the COVID of it all coming up, we may find ourselves doing more block shooting and more of that economy stuff because we don't want to revisit locations and use extras calls and things like that. We may 
end up combining more because of that than we have in the past. But for the most part, it's been, this is the director's block, give them everything they need, let's get this done in the time we have and allow them to complete their episode so they can go to work on cutting that without a bunch of holes in it. I want to talk to you more about looking to the future and the next season of Ozark, but to give us a baseline. So how many weeks were you shooting for a typical season? You said 11 days. I could do the math, but are you guys taking breaks in there? Like what's the, what's the season of Ozark filming? Usually, I mean, it's 20, you know, it's 22 weeks. It's 11 days per episode, 22 weeks. You have holidays in there. Usually winds up stretching to about 23 weeks. The first two seasons we shot over uh, the Christmas holiday. So we took, I think, a two-week hiatus during that time. In our third season, we didn't have that natural break of things, but I think we took a, like a five-day weekend or something along those lines around the July, around July 4th, is my, if memory serves. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that, that, that tends to be the, uh, the typical layout. Sometimes we do some episodes with more days, and sometimes we do not. We never really go too much less in the days, but generally, but, but every so often we will have some episodes that has some. some more and while days. we're shooting an 11 day episode, we're also spending seven of those 11 days prepping the incoming director. So, director has 14 days of prep, 22 days of shooting. So, while we get up, once we get the first episodes up on their feet, Shortly after, we've got a director getting off a plane and coming in and sort of starting their process. And Matt and I kind of ping pong between those two tasks, running the set and then also um, getting the prep right. And um, I try to lead that prep to get people uh, up to speed on the show. But a lot of times Matt drops into that prep role and I'll go cover the set. We kind of go back and forth on that. So yeah. that is always monitored. We always know what's going on there because that's really where the money is. And if something's going to go wrong, it's going to be there. But then also really making sure the incoming director has all the time that they need to get their best work prepped and ready to go. So uh, it's a you don't get to look away for very long because another team is arriving and ready to go to work. So it's a constant process. And this next season, we're going to do 14 episodes, two, two seasons of seven together. And we start shooting hmm, the way it's looking right now, maybe mid-September is what JB would like to do. I think it might be later. And then we go to maybe July of next, uh, of next year. So it's a long haul. Yeah. A lot of episodes uh, blocked out uh, for your fourth season. You also mentioned earlier that a lot of your work is local, yes, but on location versus on stage. Um, that that's a huge challenge for any for any show and for a television show to maintain that kind of pace. That's just that sounds really difficult. It is. Yeah, it could be. It, it it yeah, it could be a grind. And and I think especially for the set crew, I think it, it's a it's a you know, at the end of the day, I mean, look, Patrick and I work very very long hours, but we are able to step into air conditioning when we're prepping and we're able to get away. You know, like for for the crew that is on set, that is a that is a long grind. There's a lot of you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, just being in the elements and we tend to shoot, you know, we're not, uh, we do tend to shoot a lot of things that are, you know, in the middles of middle of fields and in the middle of the lake and, and you're just sort of exposed to the elements. And uh, it's, it is a, it is a long grind is, is what I would say, especially for the, the shooting crew. You mentioned shooting on the lake. So when you're filming on water, do you guys have just regular um, aquatic folks who come out for that or, it's pretty much every episode. Something seems to be on the water. I'll like break it down, but for every boat you see on camera, there's probably six boats you're not seeing that are supporting yeah. that. And, and when we go out to do those big scenes on the lake, it's a flotilla of 
marine experts that drive those boats. And then we have safety divers or safety people on all those to yank people out of the water, patrolling the water, making sure nobody slips in. And it's a big deal to be on the water and it's costly and it takes a lot of time. Storms kick up out there all the time. Uh, it can get very dangerous, lightning, things like that. And it takes it takes it out of you going out for that weather in that weather during the and the crew works really hard. And that's right; those guys never stop working. Or women come early in the morning, they start carrying stuff in at the end of the night, carrying it back to the trucks, and it's hot and there are mosquitoes, and it's just it's kind of miserable. But the process is worth it, and I do think for the most part, the crew believes that because they see what we get on screen and that doesn't happen on every show. Mm. We, everybody works really hard. Matt and I work as hard as they do or we're there all the time. So they understand that we're in this just like they are and we get great results and we put stuff on the screen that's really to be proud of. And that doesn't happen a lot. So and the crew, we make sure the crew knows that they're essential to our success and never let them forget that. We have an incredible Marine coordinator named Dan Malone who, who, yeah. um, we know that whenever it is that we go out on the water, that Dan has us completely covered. Dan, Dan um, is, is, is you know, the top in the business. And, and um, we've been very fortunate that he has been with us. And again, a guy who could do a lot of different things and who has come back to our show year after year because he enjoys it. He enjoys the people. He, he enjoys the show. And we happened to get him on a fluke. He was working in England on some big Christopher Nolan, whatever, I don't know. But he does all those huge shows, Pirates of the Caribbean kind of thing. And his mother and family lived in Florida. His mother was having some health issues. He wanted to be closer. He could come and work with us and still look after that. So the for it was very fortuitous that he happened to be available, was interested in our show. We were like, man, I think, what the hell is this guy doing coming to our show, knowing the kind of work that he gets paid to do. And he is, he is an excellent producer who happens to also do Marine work. I mean, he is so good at figuring stuff out. You just say, okay, Dan, here's what we're doing. Give him a script. And then he just dials it in. You can step back. He'll talk to the directors. He'll lay the whole thing on. He'll make sure everything's there quiet, unassuming, and nothing ever slips through the cracks. It's a real professional and nobody's ever been hurt. And we've been in some real scrapes out there and he, he always gets it right. He's one of those guys that just enjoy to work with because he's so good at what he does. You mentioned earlier that there are two lakes at opposite sides of Atlanta where you do your water filming. Are there specific sets that are at one lake and versus the other, or is it dependent on the action of the script? We kind of mix and match to try to make it all look like a sub of piece and then use some of those big uh, helicopter shots from the uh, bee and stuff down at the lake in the Ozark. But um, yeah, we kind of know those lakes really well now and we can kind of pick locations and then sort of knit that look together. But uh, And we're much less Alatuna driven now that we've given up the blue cat and moved on to the casino business in the story. That's a new money laundering thing. We had to up the stakes from a little six-room hotel to uh, something bigger so that Marty could run more money through it. That's where the casino came from. So we're less Alatuna driven now um, because that was the Blue Cat and more on uh, up on near because that supposedly is where our casino is, even though that sits at Stone Mountain. And that's where the birds live and all of our lake stuff takes place. So we're very familiar with both. We have a good relationship with the Corps of Engineers, the people that regulate all those lakes. Um, and try to do our best to stay out of people's way and let them enjoy themselves up there at the lake, which is primarily recreation, and still get our work done. So we have great working relationships with both those lake communities. And I think we, I think we need to recognize our, our, 
our location manager, Wes Hagen, who has done oh my God. an incredible job since the beginning of the show. And, and you know, this is just both creatively and logistically, I mean, he has been an incredible asset to the project from the beginning. And, and we've been very fortunate that he's been with us. He knows everybody and he can kind of get us out of jams that we get ourselves in and uh, very well thought of in this film community because he'd been here doing this for a long time. Still la based i think but for the most part he makes his living here and there are a number of uh really high-end location managers that have come here and worked a lot and wes is one of that group of the top two or three people that do that for a living and we're very fortunate to, to have him on the team as well he's a he's a very solid guy i mean not not to change the subject but just sort of in continuing on this and, and again maybe i'm being a little sentimental because as Patrick mentioned, I am on on another project at this point. But from top to bottom, I mean, it's it just, you know, our, our production team, Pete, Pete Thorell and Tudor Jones, who have been our, our main first ADs, are have just been, you know, top, top notch, top of the top of the line. And we've always, you know, had an incredible plan down to the details. Our our second ADs, uh, uh, who our first two seasons, it was uh, primarily Jason Graham. And then uh, season three was Townsend Wells. Again, it just it's a it's a just a very very high level functioning machine that that we've that we've been able to build, and and I think that what we have all built together is very much reflected on the screen, and I think that that I think that's the most important thing, you know, is to have the support and the team around you that is that is able to to do that, and that that that's just a very and we encourage people to be courteous and appreciative of one another, and I think. That's something that has helped a lot to keep that spirit going is that people know that everybody's there to help. If they get in trouble or something's going on, they, we were there to help them as well. I think that's uh, gone a long way to keep that team in place and to keep us uh, working successfully with them. They support us every day, and we uh, couldn't appreciate that more. You've talked about building that team from season to season and the way it's come together. What other aspects of the production may have changed from, say, season one to season three? I would say um, that one of the big differences that as the show evolved is that um, I think that we sort of became comfortable in our world of more sort of limited coverage than than what would be sort of more traditional show. We, we've had some very strong directors that are very confident in making their decisions. And so we don't tend to get an incredible amount of coverage in the way that some shows do. We do have a lot of oneers. We do have a lot of sort of choreographed steady cam shots that are not showy, but that really do tell the story in a really efficient way. And I would, from my perspective, that seems to have evolved towards the end of the first season of the show. And really from the second season on that, that creatively, I think that the look and feel of it has really been a, a uh, pr pretty, pretty consistent, you know, then on. And that's part of the process is to start, hire a bunch of directors, get all these different points of view, different cameramen, and then kind of refer to as finding the edges of the show is something that you do at a period or a point. I think Matt's adopted that phrase from time to time, but I think yes, it I does. Because, you know, we're trying to figure it out. It's just this mess of information coming at us, and you're never really sure if you're getting it right. Then you see it cut. You think, well, that kind of worked. So by the time you're into maybe the third episode of the second season, you kind of have it down. And then you can foster where the strength is and ignore the other stuff that you've been kind of obsessing over the last season because it wasn't really that important and find what works for Bateman, what works for Monday, what works for the actors, what works for us. 
and really refine that process. And now we've been doing it long enough that we kind of got it right. And I'm sure the show will end. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we talk about the the season coming up, I do have a couple of questions just about how things come together. And it's sort of with some of these locations and the challenges you talked about, I'm struck by something like the Langmore trailers. Is that like a set that you would build from scratch or did you actually find some trailers or is that something that's combined with some stage work? Uh, I'm curious about well, actually what is stage work leading into that and how that breakdown goes on a show like this. Very little of that's on stage because so much of it plays exterior. That's a piece of the lake that we have a long-term lease on. Um, those trailers we found in junkyards and hauled them in there and then kind of put them back together with scotch tape and staples so they hold together to shoot in. And then we would take people in and out of them but a couple of times when we had scenes like in the shower and things that are more intimate or need more detail, we built the interiors of a couple of those trailers on stage so we could better shoot them. But the joy and the beauty of Langmore is outside and the fact that these people live in the most beautiful spot on earth and yet they're poor and humble people and they don't build their trailer like this. They look in, they don't even look out at the, you know what I mean? There's something about that that's so simple and so, honest about the way they live their lives. And that Langmore compound is one of our favorite locations, but at, uh, in our construction, people put that together, just finding salvage trailers, hauling them in there on low boys, setting them up. And then we cobble them back together every year and take them off and store them and they get all beat up and bring them back. That's the location work there is really the important stuff, but we have built just a couple of interiors to get through some of the more difficult scenes uh, because we couldn't shoot them in something as small as the trailer anyway. Our big builds, um, if we're getting into the nitty gritty, season one, uh, we had uh, the entire interior of Lickety Splits, the strip club, was built on stage. Um, we had, um, as Patrick mentioned, the interiors of a couple of the trailers, so we very rarely use those. And we also have the bedrooms of the birdhouse, just the bedrooms of the birdhouse are on stage, and that's just for ease of shooting. But for the most part, anytime that we're at the birdhouse in the kitchen or in that front room where you're seeing out through the windows, that's all on location. Um, and just because it's a, a set that works so much interior and exterior. And then we, uh, the first season, uh, the Snell House, the uh, exterior and interior were on location, although we were very rarely in interior. And then after that, we built the Snell House on stage for the second season. But then our very biggest build was our interior of the casino, of the Missouri Bell Casino, which we built as a two-story set, um, which you'll see in the show. It connects. You have, we have shots that, you know, we have Technocrane shots and we have uh, steady cam shots that take you up and down the stairs. And so that it was a massive undertaking. Uh, and our production designer, David Bomba, uh, did a great job on that. I mean, it's a, it's a really phenomenal set. You're in there, you feel like you're, you're inside of an actual casino. And then we have the exterior of the, of the boat and the casino itself at Stone Mountain. But, but all of the, all of the interior work in the casino is, um, shot on our soundstage. Uh, and that's sort of been the more, the most, you know, that we've had a little bit more stage work in, in season three than we had had in previous seasons, mostly because we had that casino on stage. You mentioned that the birdhouse, you've recreated the bedrooms for those scenes, but large of it is on location. But I'm also struck, Patrick, going to what you said about the uh, Laymore trailers and what it's sort of represented by those sets versus the birdhouse. And I feel like that house is also very striking. 
but you found that house. Tell me more about these two locations in contrast and sort of finding that and really making it a part of the show. I think Rochelle, uh, who was our first year production designer, found that house, if I'm not mistaken, maybe with Wes, because Wes finds everything. And we couldn't believe yes. it. Amazing looking mid-century, kind of. It was almost there, but wasn't. And that's owned by a family here in Atlanta that have been in around forever. The guy that is our host there, he and his wife own that house. Um, they have a big house next to it. He was raised in that, town, that house. And his dad was a very successful car dealer here. I believe that's where he made his money. But he built that house from a kit. He ordered it from Sears or somebody. And it has that mid-century thing to it, but it's also got that a little bit of that Sears kit thing too. So it's so authentic and so kind of honest. And then the fact that old the old man, Buddy, that cranky guy they moved in with, lived there. It was very good for his sort of eccentricity. And then they just kind of decided to move there and it became such a signature piece. I do think the point you make about the Langmores living in the trailers and them living on this upscale place, even though it's a little shabby and with that long rolling and the big docks out there with boats, that's sort of the upstairs downstairs thing here. The birds come from Chicago, wealthy live on the North shore of Chicago are successful and they come down and like, we can figure this out. And then the Langmores kind of beat them at their game every time they're cagey smart and they are poor, but they are every bit as wily and as together as our heroes who come from much more um, uh, comfortable circumstances. And I think those two ways of living at that lake and the way you address that lake through those characters, are great story points without talking about it. You don't have to say it. I think one of the, the unique things about our, our birdhouse is that um, it has an incredible view of the lake, which is unique because the Army Corps of Engineers controls the land from the lake up, what is it, 50 feet outside of the, the shoreline of the lake. And so you can't do anything to, uh, to any of that land, but that particular piece of property, there was a, I want to say a hurricane in the early 90s, late 80s, and a number of the trees were knocked down during that hurricane, creating this great view. So you can see straight through to the water from that house, from from looking out, that's very rare there. You, if you, many of those places ha will have the, the trees in front of them, and and so you know, in the Lake of the Ozarks itself, which many houses sit right on the water like that, that's that is a hard thing to find uh, in in the Atlanta area, especially around Lake Lanier. So we were we were very fortunate uh, uh, that that house provided all of those things for us. The the incredibly unique sort of mid-century look, along with that great view that was that was there. And, and uh, so, yeah, that was that was a real match points. Well taken geographically, Lake the Ozarks is much different than Lanier. Lanier, very controlled by the Corps of Engineers. Lake of the Ozarks was dammed up the Osage River, which at one time was as powerful as the Mississippi or the Missouri. was dammed up by a power company in the 20s to create power for that whole area. And in damming up that river, they flooded all the surrounding area and that like 1200 miles of shoreline or something around that that was all and as they as it flooded then they start to dam to regulate the electricity they started selling off lots to you know for the real estate value and people could build right down to the water because it wasn't zoned by anybody at that point it was strictly a real estate development by a very influential and powerful power company and so people could build right on the water you could never do that today and a lot of lakes that have been developed much later or not much later, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, still had that way step back like Matt's talking about. And to find that look any place but Lake of the Ozarks was very specific because of the way it was developed. 
hard to do. But our house that we found with that weird little mid-century thing and then that swooping line right next to that house that we're talking about is this big house, a very modern place that the new family, probably 6,000 square foot, brand new house with a pool right next to it where the family that owns that house lived. They weren't even using that house except, except to play poker with their friends. Wasn't that the deal that John Bailey played poker there on uh, yeah. one week with his friends? And that was the only, and they had a cat that lived in that house. And they just kept it yep. because in honor of the father who had passed away. And then it also has down on the water, this beautiful dock that's covered. And those aren't allowed anymore. That was grandfathered in because the father had built that in the 50s or something like that. But there aren't any of those covered docks and very few of those left on the lake. But that's a real kind of thing that harkens back to the days of what might have looked like Lake of the Ozarks. So there was some stuff there at uh, at the Bailey House, uh, which is our birdhouse, that really called us. And we love going back there. And everybody loves that house. They talk about it. And uh, it's become like a tourist attraction now. People drive around trying to find it and see it. So uh, it's a, it was a unique find for us. And that, that family, that Bailey family at one point owned that whole spit of land from there out to the, uh, to all across the end of that end of the lake. They eventually sold that to the park. There's a park on the end of that now, a state park, I believe it is. But uh, they had that a big piece of ground on that really promising piece of land on the south end of, uh, of, uh, of the lake. And uh, we were really lucky that they held on to it the way they did. Couldn't work out better. Well, let's turn our attention to the future of this show. As mentioned earlier, it has been announced that Ozark's fourth season is going to be its last. It's going to come in two parts, 14 episodes total. What's it look like moving forward, picking up filming, particularly in a world with COVID-19? Complicated. I've been spending the last couple of months getting ready, and I was also prepping another show in Philadelphia that uh, is going to be done earlier than Ozark, and nothing but COVID. No movie stuff at all, all my time and work and effort has been about getting ready what we need to do to make the set, the offices, everything as safe as we can. I hired an expert the studio did who was uh, advising us. I spent all day today with him walking the stages uh, and the offices, which are adjoining, to try to figure out how that workflow is going to go. We'll start with that, get that all COVID proof to this is like bathrooms cleaning security and all kinds of stuff that goes into that and then set up a testing thing that we can do there to test for COVID and then from once we get that squared away we'll go to each of the locations and figure out what we're going to need to do it's an enormous amount of work all necessary that we really dearly hope will keep people safe there's no guarantee with this craziness going on but uh, that's the intent and uh, it's a whole new way of producing Matt would feel the same way we're learning stuff that we never knew or thought we would have to know and we kind of have the film thing down. We know how to put these together. But COVID, no way. We just have to stand back and let these folks tell us what is the best thing and then listen to them and work with them to make sure we keep everybody safe. So it's a, it's a, it's a real game changer, big time. Yeah, I think everybody's figuring out what they can and can't do. The, you know, the, uh, the white paper was issued and then the DGA issued the safe way forward. And I think that all different studios are coming out with their own version of different protocols, which then each show is tailoring to their own specific needs. Some shows are adjusting their creative. Many shows are adjusting what, what they're creatively able to do. You know, I'm, I'm hearing of shows that are starting up now that are already, you know, I know commercials have been filming and I'm hearing that shows are starting up mostly stage-based right now at this current moment as we, as we speak. But I do know that there are a lot of shows that are, that are in various stages of, 
of prep and hoping to be, you know, especially the shows that have, uh, there were, you know, there were a lot of shows that were shooting that had to stop and they're trying to figure out when they can get back up and running again and start shooting again. And then there are a number of shows that we're hoping to go and are prepping and in, in various stages and, and, uh, various, you know, various states of prep and, and, um, it's going to be, um, I think that it, we're, we're all rethinking every assumption that we know and what we've done and, and then sort of dissecting and what do you really need and how do you really need to do it? Who needs to do it when and how, and you know, with the priority of keeping everybody safe and, and it's, it's a tough one. I will say, I think that most every production will, you know, require people to wear face masks and will, you know, maintain some sort of social distancing to the extent that it can be. And there will be hand washing stations very readily available. And, uh, um, you know, the, probably the production offices and your off production will be spaced differently and you'll have, you know, there'll, there'll be all those sorts of things, but the actual shooting is going to be, you know, it's just going to be different and it will probably, there will be a time factor involved with that in terms of how these new protocols affect your shooting day and whether you're able to be as efficient because the entire film industry is built around efficiency and how can you, you know, you have a limited amount of time to do as much as you possibly can. And so those assumptions may need to be reexamined. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of complexities with regards to extras and you know, stunts and all of those sorts of elements. And, you know, just, those all, you know, come into play and there's a lot of, you know, really good, smart people that have been working on that and every show is different and every show is going to um, come up with, with the best protocols. What I can say is that, you know, I, I feel, you know, very confident that the uh, major studios are certainly putting the safety uh, of the crews um, as a top priority and uh, I think that I think that that's going to where it's going to become complicated, uh, you know, the balance of the creative desires and making that work within this new world of these restrictions. So when season three ended, did you have a commitment for season four and did you have plans for starting back up that have obviously changed, but what did it look like before COVID? They don't give you a pickup order or a confirmation that you're still in business until after the show drops. And then they do some kind of whatever conjuring that they do to figure out. We didn't find out that we had a new season until long after we wrapped the show and the show was cut and sent it and it drops and it airs and very successful airing this year because of people. I mean, not only that it's a good show, but everybody was at home with nothing to do. And so we <laughs> dropped right into the middle of that and got great viewership, stronger than we've ever had. And the writing was incredibly strong. So people were really impressed with it. But then when they did give us a pickup, this may be the end of Ozark, and I don't know if I'm even allowed to say that, but this 14 episodes will be actually season four for seven and season five for seven. So instead of doing two tens for 20 total, we're doing two sevens for 14, but splitting those between season four and season five. So the first seven will air, then there'll be a period of time, then they'll drop the next. And I think at that point, from everything that we're working with right now, that will be the, the finale finale for the show when we finish the season in July or whenever it is. Patrick, I think I read that in the trade, so I don't think you're, you're probably any inside secrets on that one. Living in Montana and getting this half-assed information. <laughs> and I've been deluged with so much information about COVID and you know, 10 Zoom calls in a day with 15 people on. I can't remember what is real and what's not, but okay, if it's in the trades, then that's the deal. And so the announcement of the new season, 
came with the understanding that we were already going to have to deal with COVID and these new safety procedures and that. And you've just been trying to plan around what that's going to look like. Right. And once we go back into business, let's just get the thing done the best way that we can and keep that momentum going. So that's the plan. Well, it's going to be a challenge, guys, not just for this show, but for the industry overall. Uh, but really appreciate you guys coming on the show today and looking back at, at, at how you pulled this together. I'm looking forward to that fourth season when it does come out. Thanks a lot, guys. You bet. Thank you. Good speaking with you. Thank you, Skip. Listeners, I can't say it often enough. Your feedback is always welcome and greatly appreciated. You can send email comments to skid, S-K-I-D, at below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us reach new listeners. And new listeners, most of our material is evergreen, so feel free to peruse our past seasons. Maybe another episode will catch your eye. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. Logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Be safe out there. Hope you're enjoying season six.